0: Post Reports is brought to you by Purina. Purina's vision is to create a future where every pet has a loving home and a healthy life, and they're making it happen through their nutritious pet foods as well as their Pet Finder platform, which matches pets with families. Learn more at purina.com/cares.
1: From the newsroom of the Washington Post.
2: Washington Post, this is Colby.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from the Washington Post.
1: This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, July 7th. Today, a new hope for a COVID vaccine. Where small business loans actually went,
3: and the unique challenges facing historically black colleges. Vaccines can work in all different ways. The goal of a vaccine is to basically expose your immune system to something that looks like the virus so that it learns to recognize it if, in fact, you're exposed to the real virus. But that can happen in so many different ways. And what's happened with COVID 19 is that this has brought out every single technology that people have been working on to try. And defeat it. And the, the one that's kind of at the front of the race right now is a class of vaccines called RNA vaccines. I'm Carolyn Johnson, and I'm a science reporter at The Post.
1: So to start out with, what actually is RNA? Because in my head, it's like something that is similar to DNA, but it's not exactly DNA. What part of your body is that?
3: Yeah. So in cells, there is DNA, which is what people are kind of familiar with, like the blueprint of a human being, all your genes and everything like that. But RNA performs this really crucial function of turning the DNA into proteins. So it kind of like turns that blueprint into something useful. So in a normal cell, you know, that's what RNA does. But what scientists have figured out is that you can maybe take this RNA and use it as like a drug or a vaccine. And that's something really kind of a new idea in science that people have been trying for a long time, but it's not super simple. So there's all kinds of like challenges to getting this to work. It's a beautiful idea that you could just get cells to make their own drugs or their own vaccines by getting this Hmm. like strip of genetic material in there that tells them what to make. But doing it is much more complicated as with everything in biology.
1: So what it sounds like you're saying is that your RNA is kind of like a factory and that your body is already using it to make stuff in your cells. And that if you could kind of co-opt the factory, that you can use it to make the stuff that scientists want it to make.
3: Yeah. And in this case, what they want to make is something your body wouldn't normally be making, which is the coronavirus is covered with these spiky proteins. They're called the spike protein. Mm -hmm. And it's just this distinctive surface protein. The idea is, is that if you can get RNA into cells that will code for this spike, then your cells will just start making the spike protein and your immune system will learn to recognize it without ever having been exposed to the virus.
1: So this is going to sound weird, but I I want you to just go with me on this. when you think about how this vaccine actually works compared with how vaccines have traditionally worked, if we were to think about it as a kindergarten class where your immune system is basically like all the little kids running around and and they're supposed to learn how to fight off this virus, how would that kindergarten class be different with an old vaccine versus this new RNA type of vaccine?
3: So the older types of vaccines, the oldest types are just presenting your body with the the virus itself, maybe a killed version or an inactivated version. So if the kindergartners were trying to recognize a dangerous animal and know that if they saw that animal, like a bear, like a bear, and they had to report it if they saw a bear, an older fashioned version might be that presenting, you know, like a a bear in a cage to them. It's a uh, unable to get to, them. to like drag the,
1: the bear <laughs> all the way into the classroom and make sure that it doesn't kill them in the process. Oh,
3: yeah. Or, you know, a taxidermy bear perhaps could be a way to teach them. You know, if you see this bear in real life, you should tell someone. Oh, and then there's another one where they could just bring a piece of a bear, I guess, you know, perhaps just... A bear head. A bear head. And then you don't need to, to know what the whole bear looks like if you know what the head looks like. And then these... Newer technologies sort of teach the kindergartners to draw the bear instead of presenting them with the whole animal.
1: So that you basically just describe it to them, talk them through it, and then make sure that what they're imagining in their head is what the bear looks like and get them to to draw it. And then, you know, even though this kid has never seen a bear, they know what a bear looks like. And when they see a bear in real life, they'll know what to do.
3: Yeah, That's pretty much kind of the idea.
1: (laughs) So you said that the reason why this new type of vaccine development is so attractive is because it's cheaper and it's faster and easier to make. Why is that? Like, why is it so much more efficient than, than other types of vaccines?
3: Well, every vaccine technology has its pros and cons. So I don't think we've really figured out what's going to be cheaper to make at scale or what's going to be more applicable in different environments. But this is really fast because you don't need the virus. So in early January, on January 10th, researchers in China posted the genome of this coronavirus before anyone really knew what it was. You know, it didn't have the name COVID or SARS-CoV-2. So at that time, all of these labs around the world particularly those that can design vaccines on a computer could start just basically choosing what vaccine they were going to make and that is something that didn't rely on them getting a sample of the vaccine or having a lot of laboratories testing and because there had been a lot of work on SARS and MERS which are very closely related coronaviruses they they also knew a lot about what to do so just speeds things up extremely fast, especially at the beginning.
1: And and when we talk about pros and cons, what are the potential cons of this particular type of vaccine?
3: Well, it's hard to know for sure, because when you talk to it's happening so fast that people are saying, you know, problems are being solved in real time and stuff. But, you know, one potential issue is, is this kind of vaccine going to have extensive cold chain requirements meaning refrigeration basically that might make it harder to deploy in a in a developing world also just our lack of experience with this vaccine it hasn't been in millions of people for years so we just have less data about you know how this technology performs overall. So there's going to just be more questions about about it because it's, you know, potentially being the first RNA vaccine ever. And that could lead to like a whole flowering in medicine of new kind of technologies in this area for other diseases. But it also just means you don't have lots of experience, whereas some of the other technologies that are coming along are there's just more information. We've we've had them in improved products. They're more tried and true. And how soon will we know
1: whether this type of vaccine is actually going to be viable for COVID, especially if we've never used it in real life before?
3: That is going to be something we're going to find out soon, hopefully. The trials for different vaccines, the large-scale trials that can really test whether it is safe and and works, are set to begin this month. They're going to enroll, you know, tens of thousands of people. These are going to be huge, huge logistical, scientific, et cetera, challenges there's all these biostatisticians, like crunchy numbers, it seems like, trying to figure out how many cases they need to get a good signal. Dr. Tony Fauci has said that it's possible, you know, by the fall or the end of the year, we would have a signal. But it, it sort of depends on the trial. We just have to see what happens when things get deployed i mean it's no trivial matter just to sign 30,000 people up for a clinical trial and then follow them for a long time so just seeing how fast and efficient that part of it is even though it sounds like it sounds like oh you'll just run a trial but like think about how all the steps that involves it's not it's not it's not something you can do quickly many trials take years to complete and we're trying to do it in weeks and months in comparison.
1: Carolyn Johnson is a science reporter for The Post.
2: On Monday, the Small Business Administration finally released information on about 700,000 different borrowers from this emergency stimulus program that they created called the Paycheck Protection Program. I'm Jonathan O'Connell. I cover financial issues for The Washington Post. The 700,000 loans they released information on tell the public the names of the borrowers, a rough estimate about how much money they received, you know, where their business is and what it does. Um, it also says how many jobs each of these borrowers is claiming that they will be you know, sort of saving with this money. So the idea behind the program is to get money to small businesses so they can keep workers on their payroll. And what we're learning is who got the money and ideally how many employees they kept on their payroll with it.
1: And what do we know from this data that they released about who received these loans from the government?
2: So there are hundreds of thousands of borrowers in there of all types, restaurants, hotels, etc. But there are also a lot of borrowers in there that have really sort of angered people. You know, there's at least a half dozen members of Congress who receive money. There are dozens of companies who pay rent to President Trump and are probably using some of the money that they were getting from the government to pay that rent to him. There's President Trump's former lawyer and and longtime uh, friend who defended him in the Mueller investigation. But there's also a sort of another round of big companies, uh, sometimes backed by private equity or connected to Wall Street, who received really large loan amounts. You know, sometimes multiple millions of dollars, even though the administration has said earlier, you know, this is really not a program for you. This is a program for smaller businesses that don't have access to capital and maybe couldn't, you know, sort of pay their workers if they don't get government money. There are foreign-owned companies that got money for their U.S. subsidiaries. There are really, really elite private schools who have access to very wealthy donor network who also receive money to keep their teachers and staff on payroll. So there's, you know, there are a wide array of different borrowers in here, and there's, you know, people are kind of making up their own mind about whether they think a lot of these people should be using the program or they shouldn't be.
1: So how did all this information become public in the first place?
2: Yeah, the program started in early April. And ever since then, the media and members of Congress and government watchdog advocates have been asking for information about who's been receiving the money because we received sort of bits and pieces from reporting and from some companies disclosing that they received money. But sort of finally, after Uh, drumbeat of of pressure, Uh, the Treasury Department and the Small Business Administration decided to release this amount. Now, it's not the full amount, but it's it's a really big start.
1: So then who specifically received these loans? Like, do we know how many of these businesses have ties to Congress or to the White House or people in high levels of the government?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a wide range of different borrowers in here because, again, this program, the idea behind it was to get money out the door quickly. Lots of workers in America, millions of workers, obviously, were without work. Their businesses had been closed by the pandemic. And the idea was if we can get this money to small businesses, the businesses will remain viable and the employees will get money. The problem is they spent the money so quickly that all sorts of people got it that now you know, some people are having issues with or are concerned about. So there's members of Congress who got money. There are more examples coming out about this literally every day right now, because there was no requirement that a member of Congress or the administration disclose that they receive money from this program. And there's actually no rule presently barring them from doing it. And people have a problem with it because Congress wrote the rules of this program and members of the administration and are now benefiting from it. But so, you know, we have at least... You know, at least a half dozen members of Congress have clearly gotten this money, either from their spouse or themselves. If you look at Kevin Hearn from Oklahoma, he was pretty active when the rules were being made about how franchises, you know, which are sort of usually members of a larger business in some way, but independent in some ways, that they should be able to get more money. Now, his company in Oklahoma, KTAC, they operate a bunch of fast food franchises and we didn't know that his company had received any money but we learned that yesterday you know ktech re- received between a million dollars and 2 million dollars in an effort i guess they're they're trying to support like 220 jobs with that money so some people are going to have a problem with that i mean he's helping to write the rules and his business is personally benefiting from that money mike kelly a representative from pennsylvania uh, his family for a long time has owned car dealerships outside of pittsburgh uh, similar thing. He received, uh, you know, between four hundred fifty thousand and around a million to to save around ninety seven jobs. Representative Susie Lee, a Democrat from Nevada, her husband runs a casino company, and she had advocated for casinos to be eligible for this money. And then, once they were made eligible, her husband's company applied for PPP money and received it. And there's. You know, there's seven, eight, or eight examples of that now.
1: And and what do these members of Congress say, or, or people who are in similar situations, about the fact that they both got to write the rules and then get the money from those rules?
2: Well, the first thing defense a lot of times is there's I've done nothing wrong. And frankly, we don't know of anything that they have done wrong. They haven't broken a rule. You know, typically when a member of Congress wants to get a small business loan or their spouse does, they have to go through an ethics review by the small business administration to see if it's all right or not. And as part of the PPP, the administration just made a blanket waiver of those rules so that any member of congress or their spouse and members of the administration could receive money without having to go through that. Again, another they didn't want to have another speed bump in getting the money out into the economy. So, you know, some people will say, "Oh, it's, I've done nothing wrong." Other people will say, "Well, you know, my husband applied for it. I didn't know who he was going to when I was helping write the rules or, you know, it's my family's business, but I don't have any role in operating it anymore. So, I, you know, I'm not really familiar with whether they're applying or not. And a lot of times uh, people are OK with that and other times they're not.
1: Well, what are some of the other things that people saw in that data that were surprising or concerning?
2: Um, you know, there's also really big chains that have been able to uh, uh, sort of get millions of dollars in loans by applying through many different affiliates or subsidiaries. So this is like fast food chains, hotel chains, and other companies that have like big Wall Street connections, you know, easy access to capital, but are still using the um, the government funding.
1: So this isn't the first time that we've heard about some of these businesses that received money from the government as part of this big loan program. Like earlier on in the pandemic, because some of these companies were publicly traded, people found out through that way that you had companies like Ruth's Steakhouse or the L.A. Lakers who were receiving money. And when that came out, there was this big push for these companies to return that money because basically people were saying, look, you weren't the people that we were worried about when we put this loan program in place in the first place. So is there going to be a similar effort now to look more closely at these companies that receive some of this money and potentially ask for that money back?
2: I feel for these companies in a way because when they applied for all that money, the L.A. Lakers, Ruth's Chris, uh, Shake Shack, they were doing it under the rules of the program. They weren't breaking any rules. So then the, the administration came back and said, "Well, actually, we didn't mean for big companies to get this. If you were if you are of a certain size and you have access to other capital, you should give it back." And so companies have given back more than thirty billion dollars to the government because they thought they should be taking it, and then realize, "Oh, maybe we shouldn't be." So there's a, it's interesting whether that will continue to happen because the companies that are on the list that we received information on yesterday, a lot of them have had the money for months or at least weeks. They probably have spent a lot of the money, hopefully on their employees, and you know it may not be feasible for them to give it back. Now there will be another round of sort of accountability here when these companies try to have their loans forgiven, and when you want to have your loans forgiven, as almost as many of them will be, you have to show that you use the money on employees. Mostly, and you have to show that you, you know, sort of did this in good faith.
1: Like you didn't use the money to just like renovate
2: your building or something like that. Well, see, they're changing the rules on that. You can use some of it to renovate your building, and Congress actually would like to see you do more of that because, you know, we're getting later in this pandemic, and some, you know, if you're a restaurant you may have to reconfigure your space in order to operate under the pandemic. You may have to have more outside seating. You may have to have, you know, plexiglass that gets installed and more policymakers want to see people use that. So,
1: so so, it sounds like it's it's just really complicated and it's getting even more complicated as this goes on in terms of what the rules actually are and who and how they should be applied.
2: Exactly. So the rules have been complicated from the beginning and they've changed a number of times to sort of prevent certain companies from getting it. And, you know the, the the takeaway here is i think that most people who borrow the money are going to have it forgiven which is the point of the program but the government is going to look very closely at big companies that got a lot of funding and whether they could have found it other places
1: And if one of the central ideas behind this loan program was to help companies be able to keep their employees employed, what does this data tell us about how effective it was with that goal? I mean, how much of this money actually helped people stay on their payroll?
2: So far, the government says that they believe the program in its entirety has saved or helped around 51 million employees of small businesses. Now, What they're doing there is they're just adding up the number that each company put on their application when they applied for funds. If if a company applied for $100,000 and said, this will help me retain 10 employees, the government just took that 10 and added to the total. The problem is that we're finding more and more, having had access to some of this data for a day or so, is that a lot of the data is extremely inconsistent. For instance, there's almost 90,000 90, employers who either put zero as to the number of employees that they were planning to help or just left that blank. And we still don't know what to make of that.
1: And what about all the businesses that had applied for this money and didn't receive it? And the fact that, you know, we heard all these stories about this loan program being exhausted within hours or days of it being opened up because there were just so many companies that were asking for all this money at once. And so what happens to the people who are left behind?
2: Yeah, Martin. I mean, the the first round of this money ran out in 13 days. So it was over 300 billion dollars that was spent in 13 days. So what happened is Congress immediately put another round of more than 300 billion dollars in, and some of it is still there. There is still right now 130 billion dollars available. Anybody who is eligible can apply right now for that money. And so the fact that that has been in there for a while and people are not borrowing it from it It has, you know, sort of informed Congress that they may need to rework the rules to make it easier for people to take it.
1: And it seems like you have these two competing pressures that are still at play right now with this with this remaining money that. At the same time that we're hearing about all these companies that shouldn't have gotten this money and there are all these questions being asked about whether or not there was enough vetting in this process, it seems like the money is still not moving fast enough to get out the door and actually help people who are in dire need of help right now, who are losing their businesses right now.
2: Yep, yeah, that that's the exact tension here. The tension is... The government knows it needs to spend money quickly because there are so many workers and Americans who are hurting. But when it does that, it always some of it always gets wasted. You know, estimates for other programs in the past have been between 20 and 30% could be wasted or subject to fraud, that sort of thing. So at the same time, they need to spend money quickly. Almost every economist agrees on that. But you know, government watchdogs who want to see the government operate properly and not waste things are trying to figure out how they can we can close all these loopholes as we go. And that sort of results in some changing rules and um, it can get complicated quickly.
1: Jonathan O'Connell is a business reporter for The Post. The Post has also created a searchable database of all the companies that received one of these 700,000 loans. For a link to that database, go to postreports.com. One more thing about how historically Black colleges and universities are trying to
0: survive during the pandemic. So we know that education as a whole is grappling with the pandemic. And almost every college right now is going through the process of whether or not to have in-person classes for the fall semester or some type of hybrid model or fully online. But for historically Black colleges and universities, or HBCUs, the decision is more complex My name is Taylor Turner, and I am a video producer for The Post. So we spoke to the presidents of four HBCUs that are adapting to stay open during the pandemic with support from private donors and aid from the federal government, and to really address some of the specific challenges they face as HBCUs. So two things really stood out that HBCUs are having more of a challenge with than PWIs or predominantly white institutions. One being that HBCUs, oftentimes some of the ones we spoke to, don't have a state system to turn to. You remember at first it was hand sanitizer. Like that was all anybody needed was hand sanitizer. And then there was the immediate shortage of hand sanitizer. Well, we were out on our own trying to find hand sanitizer. So... Three different staff members spent their weekend going all over kind of our area to find hand sanitizer. I am the 19th president of Bennett College, Suzanne Walsh, in Greensboro, North Carolina. So now when we look forward, we're already trying to think about, okay, how much hand sanitizer do we need? How do we have access to enough face masks? How do we have enough access to gloves? But another part of this is the resilience of HBCUs and the African-American community and how HBCUs continue through all the challenges to care for their students and those families. And I think it's a great time for us to really all continue to revisit our values, revisit our history, revisit our our mission, reground ourselves in it, because that's that's what's brought us this far.
1: Taylor Turner is a video producer for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We got a lot of feedback about our two part story last week The Cursed Platoon. If you haven't listened yet, you should definitely go back to Thursday and Friday's episodes to catch up. It is a very compelling story. And if you want to learn more about the pardon of Clint Lawrence, you'll find a link to the print story and video interviews with Platoon members at PostReports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
2: spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit
1: Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started
2: today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members of FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.